I started to investigate why this is happening, why this phenomenon is happening. And it has to do with the lack of minerals in our soil. So it's mineral deficiency that has led to these plants to produce what's called simple carbohydrates. And so essentially these plants are sick. They're mineral deficient, they're sick. And so they signal out to these insects, you know, I'm dying, please come eat me. <laughs> Basically, I'm sick, I'm dying, I don't have a, an active immune system, you know, I, there's no defense mechanisms. And so these insects, you know, basically are doing a favor for them, you know, them eating them. Um, basically, we are, we are growing sick plants. So that's so, sick food that we are eating. So it's yes. no wonder we are sick. Hi everyone, Nicolette Richet here and welcome to my show, the Eat Real to Heal podcast, where I am coming to you live from my yoga studio, which is in our wellness center. And it's now been converted because we can't do yoga in here and we can't run any of our retreats. So now my yoga studio has become my office away from my office because we've had to shut everything down as a result of COVID-19. At the time when I recorded this podcast with our upcoming guest, Lindsay, I had no idea that COVID-19 was around the corner. And it feels so surreal to be releasing these podcasts because we record them ahead of time, to be releasing them and doing the intro for them within the context of what's happening now around the globe. So I don't think anybody can say this enough that, you know, we are so grateful. We have so much gratitude, literally global collective gratitude for all of the frontline workers that are out there for all the essential service employees that are out there on the ground and providing food to people, providing um, resources to people, literally to all the food banks that are out there that are so inundated. I just learned a fact about Whistler yesterday that the food bank is giving away the same amount of food in one week right now that they're normally giving out in one entire year. In one week, they're giving away as much food to people who are in need as they normally give out in an entire year. So if you are listening to this podcast and it doesn't matter where you are in the world, I can guarantee every food bank right now is overrun. I want you to do three things. I really want you to go online and check out which food banks are in your community and donate. I want you to donate to them so that you are helping them get the resources, the money that they need to be able to buy the food because they're not they're also not getting the normal amounts of food donated to them from the community members because people are not out and about, they're not shopping as much and they don't have programs running where normally you would do the drop off as well as donations. I think in a lot of places around the world have been cut entirely because they don't want to transmit COVID um, through the, the touched produce and boxes and um, packaged goods and everything. So please, number one, go out there right now, even if you have to stop this podcast and donate to your local 
food bank. Now, the second thing I'd love for you to do is to identify your local food bank and also write them a loving note. Send it by email, send it by text, send it by whatever message, snail mail, it doesn't matter. But right now it's really important to reach out to those people who are working in the food banks and the shelters and say, just thank you so much for the work that they're doing because we know a lot of the nurses and the doctors and the people in the hospitals are getting a lot of the gratitude and the attention, but it's the food bank employees and staff that have no volunteers as well right now that need it more than ever. And I think we can sometimes forget that we have these incredible social organizations like the food banks working behind the scenes day in and day out, and they are definitely one of the sectors that have been hit also the hardest by COVID-19 and the amount of people who are in need. And then the third thing that I would love for you to do is to also share information with anybody that you know, letting them know that food is medicine because of the fact that it's one thing to be eating processed packaged food but people need produce. And I know that we have found it super hard to get access to certain produce that we need. Um, our local grocery stores are, you know, they're overrun. They're not able to keep things in stock. Um, and getting fruits and vegetables, which I love eating, it's forced me to have to get really creative with the limited amounts of things that we can get at different times. I mean, I know that there's some communities that have access to like, 20 different varieties of tomatoes and broccoli, and they still have access to that. Whereas our community is not like that. Our produce section was already limited. We're in a community of like 2,500 people. And, uh, and now it's like, you can't get romaine. And I'm used to eating romaine lettuce every single day. I love it. I love making big, abundant, massive salads with that. So I've noticed even the size of my salads have gone down. I'm eating a lot of eggplant because we can somehow get organic eggplant, but we can't get you know other organic um, foods. So share a recipe with somebody. If you know of really simple, maybe three or four ingredient recipes, share it with somebody that you know to just remind them that they need to get these fresh, delicious, nutrient-dense, life-giving, organic foods into their body because it's going to help them with their mental health. It's going to help them with managing things like anxiety and panic attacks, depression, lethargy, I mean, everything. And not only that, but just even, you know, defending themselves against COVID and other uh, viruses, bacteria, and anything else. It also helps to keep their organs moving, their intestines flowing, that fiber that's brilliant, insoluble and soluble plant-based fiber that's in fresh food helps to just clean your plumbing out. And what I mean by that is it allows you to bulk up and take awesome, amazing, orgasmic poos. And you know me, I like to talk about bowel movements and taking craps and, you know, urinating and all of those wonderful waste management systems that our body has. And we need to talk about it. But you know, send a note to a loved one and give them a recipe and it might just inspire them because people are cooking a lot now more than ever before. And they might just need a new recipe to ignite them and inspire them to do something different in their kitchen, but also so that they don't revert to just wanting to, you know, crash a bag of chips or 
um, you know, smack down some processed refined food, which is not going to help with your mental health, which is not going to help with your overall well-being. And so that's the third thing you can do. So let's dive into this wonderful podcast and listen to this incredible story because Lindsay is not unlike a lot of young humans on the planet who have gone to work for a company and you know you're new there you're getting your feet wet you're trying to understand the lay of the land you see things that are not appropriate and wet and conducive to your values but you know, you're still second guessing yourself. You're like, well, maybe am I seeing what I'm really seeing? I don't have much experience in this, you know, corporate sector. So, you know, should I speak up? Should I not speak up? It's sometimes our mind can play tricks on us because we're just, you know, not, we haven't been on the planet for as many years to see that, you know, there is corruption. There are people who don't operate under good values that protect people, animals, the planet, air, soil, water, you know, all of the important systems that keep our communities thriving. And this was something that happened to Lindsay. And fortunately, uh, Lindsay has able to come out on the other side of what happened. This is my beautiful daughter who's just coming in now. I am recording a podcast, but it's lovely to see you, my love. I'll be in the house soon. We'll just leave that in there because this is the reality of COVID is that our kids are coming and going. We're around them all the time. Um, I usually have one of my three daughters sitting in my lap getting either some cuddles or wanting a book read or wanting to tell me about their schoolwork. Um, and, you know, life right now is all about juggling the work schedule and all the little tiny things that we have to do, even if your business is shut down like ours is, we still have a lot of work that we need to do. And also trying to juggle the needs of our family who have emotional, physical, mental, spiritual needs right now that are probably heightened as a result of staying home and being isolated. I want to thank everybody for self-isolating and doing your part so we can flatten this curve. It's looking good in very in a lot of places, not looking so good in other places so we can do a better job. But yeah, it's an interesting time for our children. And I love that so many people are showing the reality of what it's like to be at home. There's lots of great comics doing some good stuff, lots of great memes out there. We need humor out there more than ever. Um, and there's just the plain old realities of what it's like to um, be managing our way through this global pandemic. So let's get back to Lindsay. And yeah, Lindsay was faced with witnessing uh, a, a really horrendous, act within a company and that was overlooked and that wasn't addressed, wasn't taken care of, and that resulted in several deaths in that organization at DuPont. She's going to take us through the story. I would not wish this on any young individual or you know any seasoned individual to have to be up against something where you bring it forward and then later on down the road, you realize that even though you did your part, you brought it forward, you went to your superiors, you went to your managers and, um, you know, and, you know, they said that they were going to follow up on it and then that didn't happen and it resulted in the, the loss of a life 
in several lives. And what that does to you, it can crush you as it did Lindsay. But what I love is that this young woman has used that experience to dive into the research around pesticides and these toxic carcinogenic man-made chemicals. And you know, she has learned so much in that journey of researching these chemicals and also taking it a step further to actually look for solutions. And this is why I'm so proud of this woman and so inspired by her. And then she's even got a step beyond that where she's wanted to create a film. So this podcast, this episode with Lindsay is very, very inspiring on so many levels because a lot of people would have turned a blind eye to it. A lot of people would have shut down and just said, you know what, that happened, didn't have anything to do with me because I played my part. So they would ignore it, put it behind them, potentially think that there was nothing that they could have done or nothing that they could still do. But that wasn't Lindsay's case. She is an empathetic, emotional human being and meaning that in a really wonderful way. Um, because sometimes we look at being emotional as not a good thing, but I love that she was able to use all of those emotions that surfaced as a result of the deaths of these employees at DuPont. And yes, it did take her down. Um, and it's still something she is battling, but she was able to then rise up and realize she still had a role to play, even though she no longer worked with the company at the time of the deaths. So it's inspiring for everyone to listen to. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there where this podcast, this episode is going to be heart-wrenching for some of you because you will have witnessed certain crimes within the organizations that you worked for and some of you may not have acted at all. But it's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to get inspired and it's an opportunity to think, well, if that ever did happen again, what can you learn from this episode with Lindsay? that will actually cause you to act in the future. Because we know that these injustices, these looking sideways, turning the other cheek, um, you know, maybe uh, dumbing down what is actually happening. We know that this is going to happen again in the future. It's not like the DuPont incident was last time any corporate group, corporate entity around the world ever overlooked anything that resulted in somebody's deaths. We know it's going to happen again in the future. So what can you learn from this episode that you can take with you so that you can act in a way that could change somebody's life for the better in the future? or for that organization. Maybe it'll change that organization and entice them to behave better, to do better because they know better and because an employee stood up and said, hey, we need to act on this. Okay, so let's dive into the podcast. You know where to find me at Richer Health and to find out about all the things that we don't have going on right now. But if you want to sign up for our newsletters, please do learn how you can stay in touch, learn about how, when we're going to be opening up our restaurant, again, the green mustache. And of course, you know what to do as well when you listen to these podcasts, which is to share these with other people so that they can learn the invaluable lessons that can only be told and recognized through storytelling, which is what these podcasts are. So thanks everyone for being with us. Let's jump in and listen to what Lindsay has to share with us. See you at the end of the show. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Eat Realty Heal show, where today's guest is very special, Lindsay Eichinger. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Um, it's really interesting how I got in touch with Lindsay. I saw your post. And I actually don't even remember where I saw it. It must have come through Facebook, but it just spoke to me so loudly because this past year we had Dr. Zach Bush on our film. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who know Dr. Zach Bush, I mean, he's all about soil regeneration and he's a medical doctor who is really trying to save North America's soils from being completely depleted as a result of the amount of pesticide insecticide use. And so today's guest, um, when I saw that post, I guess it had come up on Facebook, um, it was referring to a mass, mass um, media uh, story that had happened where four people had died working at DuPont. And we are going to dive into that story because Lindsay actually did an internship there. So Lindsay, um, I know that you're no longer working as a chemical engineer. Is that correct? Yes, uh, primarily. Currently. Yeah, Prim current, currently I, I, I do not work as, an, as a chemical engineer, yeah. Okay, so I know that this story is, brings up a lot of, I imagine, emotion. And you know, when we were talking before the show, you had mentioned, uh, and I like how you mentioned it. You said, you know, some people refer to it as PTSD, even though you weren't saying you refer to it as that. But, you know, after working in a place where you, you know, were able to come out and speak about what happened there, I mean, that does bring up yeah. a lot of uh, emotion and and trauma too, because I think most people, and why I say you're so special, is because of the fact that most people who are working in companies, they often don't come out and say anything, and and that's the hard thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. So take us back to let's just go back to when you're in university and you were studying to be a chemical engineer. What what made you want to go into engineering? That's actually a funny story. Um, I, it was uh, a movie that inspired me. Um, I watched a movie called Lorenzo's Oil uh, in sophomore year of high school. And I was so inspired by the parents' dedication to find a cure for their little boy uh, that that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to cure orphan diseases. Um, and, uh, and what are orphan diseases? If you can just orphan diseases, it. they are um, they are genetic diseases that uh, only affect a very small uh, community of people. And so, these scientists and doctors, there's not enough people that it affects for them to really look into curing it and everything. And I wanted to be one of those people that focuses on orphan diseases and curing them. And uh, I actually wrote my college essay on Lorenzo's oil. And it obviously, it spoke to a lot of, you know, admissions folks as well. Um, because I wanted to be one of those people that uh, cured diseases that people just didn't want to look into. Yeah, and I, and I have a lot of clients that come to me and they'll often say, you know, my disease is very rare. And, you know, we're seeing more and more chronic degenerative diseases, especially which are lifestyle diseases, which are, you know, often triggered by our environment. And, um, and you know, they get these classifications as rare, but 
what most people are not understanding is that it's just that there, there's not enough money to justify looking into them just yet because everything, and from what I've learned, and maybe you can correct me on this, but my brother's a biophysicist and you know he's in the working in labs and he's a biochemist and he's producing, you know, trying to find, you know, these drugs that are going to heal people um, from chronic diseases and acute diseases. And um, the thing that he's really shared with me too is that, if there's not enough people with the disease, there's not enough people to buy the drug. Therefore, there's not enough people to mark to market to. Therefore, there's not enough money to even justify making the drug in itself. Yeah, and it's really sad because there's still people, and they deserve the same attention as those that are affected by diseases that are much more common. Like, you know, obviously Alzheimer's. They're making strides with Alzheimer's and stuff like that. But all the, all these other orphan diseases, people people deserve that sort of treatment as well. Yeah, and it does require one person who is so passionate about trying to find a cure to that orphan disease, just like in Lorenzo's Oil, one of my most favorite movies. So I love that you reference that. Um, but I was just at uh, Tony Robbins' event, and they had one of the speakers that came up, and a mother who had a daughter who had an orphan disease and nobody could help her with it. And she's an engineer as well. And she, nobody would help her with it. And basically once you, this di disease is diagnosed, you get about five years to live. And she was, this mother went to the ends of the earth and put together a team and she ended up finding the, the treatment for her daughter when no one else would. And it was actually an engineer who found it. So I just love that. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. So I'm going to definitely share her name with you um, because you're going to want to look into what she's done. And, yeah. um, and I know you've been dissuaded by your experience in the engineering world. And you talked about a mistrust, which we're going to get into. And I want to, I want you to be explain to help explain where that mistrust came from. But um, I think by sharing this woman's story, you're going to see how how everything she did in just finding that one, literally a cure for this orphan disease, which has now saved thousands of people's lives in North America. So her daughter's now a teenager. That is nuts. Isn't that nuts? It's motivation. It's motivation, right? And it's motivation coupled with that sense of knowledge coupled with that passion coupled with that. I think you have a big heart just like she did. She wasn't just doing it for her daughter. You know, ultimately she wanted to help all these other people. And that's what she said in her talk was that when she saw the other kids in the hospital with her daughter that were going to die from this disease, she, it was just became bigger than just her daughter it became about the community and the, and the greater mm -hmm. world. So so take us back to engineering. So you got accepted, you wrote this amazing essay, you got accepted, and then you started engineering school. And then what brought you, how did you end up being at DuPont? Yeah, so um, I had done, in my sophomore year of college, I also did like drug delivery research. And I, I was doing a lot of um, research on the cancer side as well. Uh, but I decided, hey, you know, um, let's try some engineering work because, you know, I was something that I regret, of course, but, um, and so I uh, interviewed with uh, DuPont um, in the insecticide unit, and uh, I took uh, an internship, uh, which is part of the 
co-op program. So I went to University of Akron. Uh, it's a five-year program for chemical engineering. And the fifth year is because you do uh, like a, a year of work study. So the co-op program ran uh, for five months. So I started the, the internship co-op program uh, in January of 2013, and it ran uh, for five months. And I worked in the insecticide unit uh, within DuPont uh, in Laporte, Texas. So what's what's crazy about this is that as someone that was obviously very, very uh, passionate about disease and cancer, I guess, I didn't really make the association with the insecticides, you know, because when you're working for these companies and you're making these chemicals, you, you're inundated into the environment that you're doing something good. You know, they keep saying that, you know, organic is not sustainable. We can't, you know, we can't, these little farmers can't feed the world, right? And so we need these insecticides, we need these chemicals. And uh, so I thought I was doing a good thing. I wrote actually another essay after the co-op program on why insecticides are important and everything. And one of the things I was measuring was the pressure relief valves. I was helping their efforts on the pressure relief valves. And yeah, I mean, it was obviously I have an opinion on some of the experiences though, um, but it wasn't until after I left the internship that uh, bad things happened, bad things started to happen. And what were those bad things? Yeah, so I then went back to school. Uh, it was my senior year in 2014. November 15th, 2014, that's when the chemical leak happened. There was a chemical leak that happened at the plant and in, in my area and four people died. And it changed my life because you know, one of the things that they claimed early on that failed was a pressure relief valve. And you had been working on that was one of the things I was working on. And of course, it had to do with my feeling of inadequacy. You know, I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I wasn't a good engineer. And this just intensified that feeling that I was, you know, being an engineer was not what I, you know, not what I wanted to do. But um, it became a spark for my research. And so, so you were an intern that worked there for five months, but this was a 90 year old plant. And yes. so obviously the pressure relief, you know, leak, uh, the valve leak, you know, didn't, wasn't related to you. You were one, you know, pawn in the whole entire, you know, scheme of it where, you know, you worked for five months. Was there something you know, like for you, I, like what I'm hearing is that there's, is there a guilt that you've taken on or is it? Yes. Um, well, it, it has to do with, you know, my experience there really. Um, and 
what had happened there that really is what brought the guilt upon. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can share that yet. Um, Cause I, you know, I want people to understand my mentality, but I, you know, I, I'll, I'll probably share it. I, I did find one that was undersized when I was there. Uh, a valve. Yeah. A valve that was undersized. And, you know, they, I think what happened was that they felt, you know, I told them about it and I felt some pushback from the discovery, but ultimately it, I think that one did get replaced. Um, but I, it's not always good news to have, right? To bring that to your boss and say, you know, mm-hmm. found one that was undersized. And, and I think maybe, you know, I thought if I went back, you know, maybe I would have been able to find that one that was undersized. You know, maybe I would have been, you know, it's like a what if sort of situation that's in your head, you know? That's hard because I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, I've worked in engineering and, um, and I did this in government and it was a tricky situation because I remember when I first moved to this town and got the job and started working and I started to, you know, there was a few things, files coming across my desk that just didn't look right. And I would bring it to my general manager and say, hey, you know, like Health Canada releases warning against this, you know, the fact that this lake has issues, you know, what are we going to do about it? Thinking that they're going to say, yeah, okay, like, that's so great that you came across this. Let's go do something about it. And it was very opposite. They were like, we're not doing anything about it. And you know, and that's the hard thing. And being, you know, brand new and we had just bought a house and we kind of relied on the income and we had a third baby on the way. Um, And not that I was thinking about that, but I was like, well, who, well, okay, well, they're the ones with 30 years of expertise in the field. And I'm somebody who's just coming in, you know, maybe I'm just not even reading it correctly. Like I would, the self-doubt would come in. Um, And I can imagine, like, as you tell this story, that if, a year later, I'd heard that a kid had died in that creek, um, in that water body because of, you know, what was there. I can imagine feeling yeah. very similar to you. But also, I don't know, I think this speaks volumes to the fact that, you know, when we have an organization, if our leaders are not taking their employees seriously and are not doing something to say, hey, listen, we're going to, this is the plan that we have in place. If we find a valve that's too small, or if we find X, Y, and Z that's in the lake, it shouldn't be that okay, well, that's fine. We're not going to do anything about it. It should be that there's a protocol in place and we're going to do everything yeah. we can. So I can understand, like I, I can definitely put myself in your shoes. So then when this happened, when these four people died, what happened? Like, I know it made the media and it, there, this was all over the media. Um, and so what happened at the time with, at DuPont? How did they manage it? And what did they end up saying about this? Yeah, so the chemical safety board came in um, and reevaluated the plant basically, and they recommended that DuPont shut it down because there were too many safety violations. And this plant, though, was when I was working there, it was like one of the safest plants within DuPont. And so there were so many, so it was ultimately that there were a lot of problems. And so then the following year, DuPont ended up shutting it down entirely. Yeah. 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 They ended up shutting it down. Because there was no way, no way to repair it to this point that it would be actually be safe for people. 
Well, I thought that was one of the factors, but then I read, you know, I was looking into it more recently. It was ultimately also because they weren't making a lot of money on it because Monsanto was taking over that market. So it made no sense economically as well to reopen that plant, to just shut it down. And they, they also, uh, two years later, they uh, spun off insecticides to a different company. So they, so DuPont no longer makes insecticides. Okay. Okay. And do you think that that was the result of those four people dying? Is that why do you think I, that happened? Or is it more of a, like, what are your thoughts on that? I want to think that they definitely, it definitely affected their decision with the chemical leak. Um, but I don't, I can't say conclusively mm-hmm. whether or not that was because, you know, they, I think when I was there as well, they were, they were just struggling to get it out there as well to compete with these other companies that were dominating the market. Yeah. Like the Monsanto's. Monsanto. Yeah. Yeah. And now Monsanto has been bought by Bayer. Bayer. Yeah. yeah what are your thoughts on that when that happened? <laughs> I actually interviewed with Bayer too. Oh, you did. Um, it was it was for it was it was for another co-op. I'm glad I didn't get it. Um, it was in West Virginia. I, you know, I believed in Bayer because Bayer did a lot of cancer. Re- you know, they did a lot of they have a lot of drug therapy and everything. And we were my family and I were just shocked when we found out the news because it's it's almost like they're going to make the insecticides and then they're going to cure you with, you know, the, the drugs and everything, or they're going to give you drugs and everything. To treat the people who've been affected <laughs> by the basically. And um, the lawsuits was kind of crazy though, because that was in 2018 when the, and um, the chemical leak happened in 2014. So, it brought my attention back to obviously, you know, Monsanto, Bayer and everything. But I, I think it's a, it's a very corrupt industry market and everything. And I, 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 I never wanted to go back to those, you know, that industry at all. Um, I ended up taking another job uh, within semiconductors. So I worked for Intel Corporation after I graduated. And did you end up, did, were you ever interviewed as a, uh, as a result of having been an employee of DuPont? Yeah, I mean, Intel, uh, Intel took, I think, took a liking to me because I had uh, DuPont experience, because I did work for DuPont. I actually worked for DuPont again um, in another co-op uh, making Kevlar in, in Richmond, Virginia. And so what were they doing with the Kevlar? Um, they, you know, they were, that, that's mostly for personal protection. So that's right. stuff that they were doing for military and everything. I think, um, I think, I don't know too much about that, but I, but I was making, you know, working on um, different projects within for Kevlar. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting, but um but 
that, so I had a co-op experience from basically 2000, January 2013 to uh, May 2013. That was with the insecticide unit. Mm-hmm. And then I had summer school and then I had another co-op. Um, and that was uh, in early 2014. And then then my senior year happened. And this so. was before the, this is all before the leak happened in the plant. Yeah. And then, so with the insecticides that you were working with, like they are, what have you learned about them since? Cause I imagine you've done a ton of research on this, but you know, we have so many people in this world. I mean, the biggest users of insecticides from what I understand, looking at the statistics is um, they're household users. It's not, you know, Monsanto goes through barrel, well, not Monsanto, Bayer now goes through barrels and barrels and barrels of glyphosate and Roundup, um, you know, but we have household families that are spraying their gardens across North, North America to keep them green. We have municipalities that are spraying their land across North America to keep it green when technically they should be brown because water's limited and, you know, yeah. and it's dry summer. And so what have you learned about insecticides that, you know, you didn't know about before? Yeah. uh, That you can share with the public because, you know, I can tell people and people think I'm just a crazy veggie lady who teaches people (laughs) how to use food as medicine, but sometimes it's nice hearing it from a chemical engineer who's actually worked in the field and had this direct experience with DuPont. Yeah. So a lot of the knowledge I have was based off my research with even with actually uh, glyphosate and Monsanto. So because of the whole Lanate thing, um, a lot of these other insecticides are not really as popular, um, but the herbicide, really the weed killer, uh, glyphosate and Monsanto or Roundup is really something I've been looking into. And I've done, I've done a lot of research in terms of looking into studies so um, I'm familiar with Dr. Stephanie Seneff's research on uh, insects or on the herbicide, and she says that it's it's uh, it literally kills like your gut microbiome, which is kind of insane. Um, it has to do with the uh, pathways that these herbicides actually you know attack in terms of the plant, but that seems to be similar pathways, I mean, don't quote me, but uh, it seems to be similar pathways as, as to our gut microbiome. So um, that's something that's really harmful to our bodies. Um, also, uh, another thing is that I learned is that when you spray them on, you know, onto the plants or on the soil, it actually, uh, glyphosate actually attaches to minerals, they bind to minerals. So they so they deprive, you know, these plants of minerals as well. And that's, they're one of the causes for mineral deficiency as well. So they are not good at all. Not good at all. And I think you hit the nail in the head there with those two points, in fact, because, um, you know, and, and the thing that's scary is that, like, I'm going to assume I haven't asked your age, but you are a lot younger than I am, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm... I'm 28, so. 28, okay. So I've got almost a good 20 years on you here. That's crazy. You could be my data. Um, So um, the thing is, is that 
20 years ago when I was in university, we were talking about this stuff, you know, and you would have been about eight years old at the time. Actually, this is probably going on more than 20. Oh yeah. More than 20, 24 years ago. We were talking about this in university and talking about how we knew back then the research was showing back then that, um, these insecticides and herbicides would damage the, uh, essentially the, what, the way they act and what you were referring to is they cause the cells of the little tiny insects that they're attacking to burst open. And so then they die. So we knew back then that the same pathway was happening in our gut. There were scientists who were saying, no, the same thing. It goes, we eat this food that's been sprayed and the glyphosate travels through our body and then causes our delicate, you know, intestinal lining and gut lining and stomach lining the cells to just burst and rupture. So creating literally like these little tiny holes. So you know, so here we've had this knowledge for 24 years and I mean, and you are having to discover it on your own because I'm assuming you weren't taught this in school, were you? No. Yeah. So you're, no. And of course, DuPont is telling you, you know what? The world needs these insecticides. The world mm-hmm. needs these chemicals. So as a young, you know, minted student in university who's learning, like you have all these messages coming in and, but nobody is teaching you the actual science behind the the downfalls of these chemicals, which have been there. I know because yeah. I studied this in university 24 years ago. So that's what's scary to me. And then, but you definitely hit the nail on the head. And I love that you arrived at that conclusion on your own in the research that you did, because people, if you're listening to this, the research is out there. And if you're a mother or a father and you're feeding your kids like insecticide and herbicide sprayed food, like do the research, do the research because the research is available, which Mm -hmm. obviously Lindsay, you found it. So it's available. I found it. It's available. Now, the second part is um, the part about, so sorry, hold on, I just lost that. We've, we talked about the microbiome and the gut being affected. Oh, the mineral deficiency. So a lot of people, you know, they're like, oh, eating organic doesn't matter. And, you know, there's not any, it's not any better for you than non-organic. Um, and it's true, even in non-organic and organic food, if the, that soil has been sprayed with these herbicides, the soil is going to be nutrient deficient. So the food's going to be nutrient deficient. So this is where I love diving into this next part about what you're so fascinated and interested in. It's the regeneration of the soil. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, but, yeah. be, but before uh, we do, I understand, are you making a, do you have a plan to make a film on this? Yeah. So I wanted to um, make a film uh, it was going to be a documentary. It was called um, Hidden Hunger or Missing Minerals. It's uh, right now we're in development. Uh, we haven't yet secured money for it, but it's definitely something that um, we're working towards this year um, because I think it's mineral deficiency is such a fascinating subject and it's something that needs to be discussed. Mm-hmm. And doctors and scientists are. I don't, I don't feel like doctors and scientists are really talking about mineral deficiency. No, they're not. They're talking about our farming practices and they're talking, you know, but they're not really discussing the lack of minerals. And so I thought that 
it would be great to have a documentary on this subject because I, I absolutely love documentaries. Me too. You know, I've watched a ton of documentaries like, um, you know, I remember Fed Up, one of my favorite documentaries that yeah. came out in 2014. It was right around the you know time of the chemical leak. So that definitely caught my attention. And uh, then there's also like Food Inc. came out a while back. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, what the Health. You know, a lot of these documentaries are coming out that are basically changing the way we think about food. Um, but it's time we really talk about minerals yeah. and the lack thereof in our farming practices. And um, yeah, so... I can dive in a little bit of that. So uh, obviously when the chemical leak happened, um, I went through a depression, you know, a depressive state. You know, I sort of didn't want to become a chemical engineer. You know, I felt like my, my profession was killing people, you know, because I wanted to cure cancer. Like I, you know, that was my goal. You know, how could, how could this, of how could this happen to me? Um, and so I did, I did sort of blame myself because I remembered all the things that happened within, you know, within the plant when I worked there. And so the only thing that actually made me somewhat feel a little better was doing research on insecticides and pesticides, why we need them, why they are around, mm -hmm. because the truth of the matter is we do actually need them right? Because plants or insects are attacking these plants. They are eating the plants. They are doing this. They are doing, you know, and now so you, you do so, need them. Okay. So can I just ask about that just to clarify, because I can imagine that there's going to be people being like, do we though? Or is it a result of the way we've been yes, farming with these exactly. monocrops, right? Because we yes. have monocrop practices, we need yes. the insecticides. But if we were to, like the alternative to that would be? Yeah. So that's, that's another thing is like, I started to investigate why this is happening, why this phenomenon is happening. And it has to do with the lack of minerals in our soil. So it's mineral deficiency that has led to these plants to produce what's called simple carbohydrates. And so essentially these plants are sick. They're mineral deficient, they're sick. And so they signal out to these insects, you know, I'm dying, please come eat me. <laughs> Basically, I'm sick, I'm dying, I don't have a, an active immune system, you know, I, there's no defense mechanisms. And so these insects, you know, basically are doing a favor for them, you know, them eating them. Um, basically, we are, we are growing sick plants. So that's so, sick food that we are eating. So it's yes. no wonder we are sick because- Oh, we're the, very sick. You're very sick because the plants can't even, uh, and I love this because, you know, in a time when um, I just came across this kid's post on Facebook and he's very young, suffering from mental health issues. And he filled out an assisted suicide, um, a doctor assisted suicide forms and posted them on Facebook. And I came across it because uh, we received his mail by accident. So I just thought I'd Facebook him. And then when I started to see what I saw on Facebook, but it's interesting because 
the reason I bring this up is because here we have these young kids who are depressed and sick and suffering from all these mental health issues that are now signaling like these sick plants, like just take me now. I don't want to live anymore. And the same thing is happening. But it was interesting though, and I'll just bring this up and then let you continue because I really want to hear this part of um, from you. But when I called his mom to say, hey, do you know that your son's going through this? And she said, oh, yes, we managed to like pick him up and bring him back home. And then I said, well, you know, I'm just putting it out there because I use food as medicine to help my clients who are sick. And I said, and she said, oh, you know what? She said, he switched his diet to an organic plant-based whole food diet that was nutrient dense and he got better. Yeah. And so, but there was a slip up there, something happened, a chain of events where he was off that diet and then he got sick, then it came back. So it's interesting. I love this, this, how you explained it, that these sick plants are calling out to like die. And I yeah. feel that's what's happening in our society right now. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels and it's, you are what you eat. So, and you are what they eat basically. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I started looking into it deeper, you know, and I found out about mineral deficiency and I found out about lack of minerals. And so I started using supplements and uh, I found amazing energy from them. I used like isogenics. I used some of these other ones that are built for, they, they provide the minerals. And I started thinking, you know, why aren't the minerals in the soil? you know, because that's exactly what needs to happen. And so what happened is that, you know, a little history of soil history, uh, we started to use, after World War II, we started to use nitrogen-based fertilizers. That became very, very popular. And so that took the place of like a lot of these organic practices, crop rotation, all that stuff. And, um, and it was mostly because these uh, folks left over, they had TNT left. I don't know if you know the history of the, of the TNT. I don't tell me this is exciting. Yeah. So this is after World War II, they had uh, a bunch of TNT left over. And so they said, oh, we're going to turn this into fertilizer basically. Oh, they were so using what was the TNT? So the TNT is an explosive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So what, and what was it made out of? Do you know? It was like uh, ammonium nitrate. It was like, you know, it was like uh, nitrate, nitrogen and ammonium and everything. So right. they had all that raw material. They had all that nitrogen based, you know, raw material. And so they started, because they had such a massive amount, they started to use it and started to put it as fertilizer. They just started to sell it as fertilizer, which is kind of an insane, it, it's so insane. So that started to spread, right? And so because we're using only one mineral, like nitrogen, and also it's, it's crazy, but because we're only having like one mineral, like now these plants are becoming deprived of minerals. Like our, it's because of our fertilizer. And so I became obsessed, obviously. And uh, in 2016, I, uh, I scrolled through Twitter. Uh, it was Twitter. Awesome. Um, Using hashtag mineral deficiency because you know I was a, a geek. I'm a, I'm a geek, and I was me looking too. At, me too. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I do on a Saturday Night Live. I Google things like mineral deficiency too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I scroll through Twitter, and I found this tweet that I thought was very interesting. And 
was talking about feeding the hidden hunger. And so I clicked on the article and it was uh, an interview from Acres Publishing. And it was talking about ocean mineral fertilizer, which is basically taking minerals from the ocean, diluting it, and using it as fertilizer. Basically either drenching the, drenching the soil or using it as foliar spray. And when you fertilize with diluted ocean water, it makes plants disease resistant. Wow. And so that essentially eliminates the need for insecticides and pesticides because what happens is that the minerals are there, it react, fully activates the immune system, it fully activates all of the enzymatic activity, and these plants produce what's called complex carbohydrates. And when it produces complex carbohydrates, those sugars are not digestible by insects. So they essentially, like they're not attracted to these plants. And they are also healing for us as well. Exactly. Because they have all the magnesium, selenium, all these minerals that we've been missing for probably a hundred years. Exactly. It's probably around, you know, it's getting up there. I mean, we've been missing minerals in our soil for a long time and we are seeing the effects of it. And what I'm promoting is a way for us to get the minerals back into our soil in inorganic form, which is something that I wanted to um, sort of um, connect about, like talk about, because I think we get confused with the concept of organic. Yeah, versus, certified organic. Yeah, inorganic. Yeah. Um, so with organic, Plants cannot absorb organic material. It needs like fungi and needs bacteria in the soil to convert it into inorganic form. And so that's what the plants absorb is inorganic minerals, ionic minerals. But the ocean minerals already come in the ionic inorganic form because the ocean, what it does is it, it basically breaks down minerals into its, you know, in its simplest form. And when you put that on the plants, it's readily absorbable into the plant, basically. So that blew my mind. And I think that is something that needs to be heard. That's, that's part of my message. And it's interesting because of the fact that the way we've designed our municipalities in North America is that all of our pipes that leave our homes eventually make their way into the ocean. So here we are taking all of these valuable nutrients. We've like raped them. And I use that word all the time. We've raped them from the soil and um, we've pillaged. And then we just go stick them in a pipe down the toilet, whatever, like they might work their way through us um, and then end up in these sewer systems. Mm -hmm. And then it all ends up in the ocean as well. So I'm curious, do you know anything about the volumes that would be needed to restore North American soils? And would there be enough minerals left in the ocean if we were to do this? Or how, like, is there, is there oh. that systemic thinking happening around this? 
Yeah, there there are farmers that are using the minerals. The luck, the the good part is that you don't really need that much many minerals in order to restore the soil, because the ocean is so the so packed volume you know volume wise right. And so a lot of people actually do, it's like one to 2% of solution of with, with the ocean minerals, like that's all you need in a gallon, you know? So it, it's, you know, and then I think some of the application, I was looking at some of the application rates for some of the um, ocean mineral fertilizer companies, and they said to use it maybe once in three weeks, you know, it's, it's not even that often you know, that you really have to spray, um, spray your plants with it. And so I think that's also helps if you get a gallon of it, it could probably last you all, you know, all season. Basically. So, so is this something where Monsanto, which I'm sure, or well, not Monsanto Bayer now, I have to remember to say that, but where, you know, I mean, they've, there's been so many lawsuits, um, against uh, with the connection between glyphosate and uh, cancer causation in many, many people. Um, and in fact, you know, I often say, you know, if you want to geek out like me on a Saturday night, you can actually Google law firms and yeah. just random law firms. And you'll actually see the call out from these law firms saying, hey, if you've been someone who's been damaged by glyphosate, call us. Or, you know, they'll have all the pending trials that are listed for, you know, um, class action lawsuits, lawsuits against um, the glyphosate companies like Monsanto and now Bayer. Bayer. And so... Um, but you don't have to do that on Saturday night live or Saturday night. There's lots of other things you can be doing, like reading about what to do and yeah. which would be to get minerals in you. So is there a chance though that the bears of the world can then just basically like turn this into a company and it becomes another commodity that they're gonna dominate? Or is this somehow is there some way to protect this knowledge in a way that it won't be it won't be exploited exploited yeah that's a good word. um well there are certain companies that do it right now that sell the ocean fertilizer and it's actually i, I wanted to show you the book um, so this is the book that i read sea energy agriculture and this is um after i learned about the ocean mineral fertilizer in 2016 i actually read this book and it's mind-blowing and it's actually what re-sparked the in like the movement with the ocean mineral fertilizer in the early 2000s so this is sort of it's it's kind of new it sort of re-sparked in the in the early 2000s uh there's a lot of farmers and companies currently doing it but they they don't there's not a ton of marketing out there and so that's i think what i wanted to take on is you know with my story, make sure, you know, use my story as an avenue to sort of educate the public on mineral deficiency and how we can restore the soils. Um, I do not, I don't think, I, I honestly don't know if these, these big, you know, big ag companies know about it. Like, I don't know. Um, I know that there are some sort of conspiracy, conspiracy theories around it. Like there, you know, people are trying to be prevented from talking about it or something like you know, the sea energy agriculture the minerals sorry 
I, did you say about being prevented from being able to talk about the um, the sea sea energy agriculture and the minerals? Yeah, there. Uh, I, I was talking to a lot of people within the movement, mm -hmm. and they said to be very careful. They they warned me. They said that this is um, this could potentially, like, obviously restore our health. You go, you know, this could restore. This could take the place of supplements. This could take the place. This could. There's so many industries that have popped up because of lack of minerals in our soil. Exactly. And to fully restore the soils and to make sure that we are recycling minerals back into our soil, it would be, it would be a loss for so many industries. It would be. So, and I'm just thinking about Dr. Murray Maynard, who wrote that book, Sea Energy Agriculture. And he's a medical doctor who also came across the fact that, you know, uh, plants and animals and humans are deficient in minerals. And, um, you know, and this was out, I think this book came out in 2003, perhaps. Yeah, but he originally published it in 1976. In 1976? Yeah. And I get the impression that he's not alive anymore, is he? No, he, he, he died in 1983. Yeah. Oh, he did. That's too bad. Um, he's just definitely ahead of his time. But um, one thing you might not know about me and anybody who's listening to this podcast for the very first time is that I teach what's called, it's a metabolic nutritional therapy called the Gerson therapy. And yes, yes. And Dr. Yes. Max Gerson, 1918, discovered yes. that nutrients healed the body. And there was two causes of the disease. He said, number one, mineral deficiency, nutrient deficiency in the body. And number two, toxicity that resulted from being mineral deficient because when you are fully thriving and you your nutrient makeup is outstanding your body will naturally support the detoxification of the body you don't need additional methods to do that and your body's not send, sending out signals like kill me kill me come yeah, eat yeah, me bugs me. yeah and you're not suffering from mental health and depression and low energy and all of this is that your body is thriving so dr max gerson discovered this in 1918 and i'm sure he and dr marie um maynard would have been really good friends because yes. you know here we have it and and dr max gerson said it back then in 1918 he said if people do not stop using these fertilizers because he saw the fertilizers being used in germany at that time yeah after World Those War I. Those were invented. Exactly. And he saw it directly what happened in the soil. And I love this one, um, in one of his books, he writes about when he was a eight-year-old child, when fertilizers were being sold to his grandmother. And so this is back in the 1800s, fertilizers, yep. like people were trying to sell them, but you know, they were expensive. But his grandmother, you know, she was given these fertilizers, sprinkled them into the soil on one half of the garden. And then there was a pathway that was separating and she never got around to um, fertilizing the other half of the garden. And what he observed as a seven or eight-year-old boy was that the earthworms and the bugs started crawling up out of the fertilized soil and moving themselves across the pathway and going into the soil that wasn't fertilized. Yeah. And the earthworms. And earthworms are not in competition with our food. They're there to help us grow food. So I just think that really for him planted a seed. And of course, he went on to be... Um, you know, one of the world's most renowned doctors for reversing all types of disease and chronic disease and cancer 
using food as medicine, using minerals, people, like exactly what Lindsay is talking about here. So I also love how you talked about your depression just very slightly, but you also talked about what lifted you out of that was doing research. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because did you ever resort to, um, you know, having to take antidepressants or, you know, how did you manage that depression and how did you go about that just with yourself? I'm curious. Yeah, I think, um, honestly, because I'm, you know, the the way I am, I have an inquisitive inquisitive mind. I think that's the only thing that really helped me. Um, I did not take any, I honestly, the way I handled it was really bad. I, I drank. Um, right. Which is the I way drank, a lot of people handle it. Yeah, I, I drank a lot. Uh, I remember when the chemical leak happened was on a Saturday. I drank a ton that night. Um, I just didn't, you know, I didn't want to feel anymore at that point. You know, you don't you're kind of trying to save yourself from exactly. the pain in essence. And it's, I drank a lot actually after that. And then, and um, I still, even, even when I moved to California and everything, I, I was drinking still. Cause like, you know, you may know about the solution and you may know about, you know, ocean mineral fertilizer, but the world still doesn't know about it. It's so frustrating. So it's really, it was really hard for me to let, you know, it's like, how am I going to deliver this message? How am I going to tell the world? Because even when I was talking to people about the documentary, you know, I wanted, and that's why I was like, I was, you know, going towards the documentary and everything. Um, people, distributors told me, I don't, you're talking about DuPont, you're talking about going against big ag, like, this is not a good idea, <laughs> because a lot of, you know, that's not a good movie to pick up, right? Yeah. If it's going against big ag, or it's fine, you know, but I don't, I don't want that documentary to be about that, it's, it's really about, you know, my journey, and figuring out, you know, this, this kind of stuff, and then talking about mineral deficiency as a, you know, as the problem, and solving that through, you know, this, the ocean mineral fertilizer. So, uh, and so there is a lot of fresh, yeah, there's a lot of frustration, you know, because you find out about this stuff, right, 2016, and you're hyped up, and you're like this, you're like that, but then you find out that people are still dying. Mm-hmm. People are still dying from chemicals. You know, you find out about these lawsuits that are happening, which are which are great. But you still find out about so many people that have been impacted, and you know about the solution, but you just want a way to deliver your message. And um, that is sort of why I went towards film. You know, I was also an actress at that time too. So I knew that I had an avid, I knew the impact of film because film inspired me to go into chemical engineering and cure orphan diseases. So I knew film was a way for me. Uh, wait, sorry. Uh, uh, it, film was a way for me to deliver my message 
and everything. So you're allowed to sneeze on this podcast. It's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was really, it was really random. Sorry. No, that's um, good. And that's interesting because I wanted to ask about how did you, you know, going from a chemical engineer into film. I mean, we see people um, go back and forth between. Uh, industries and careers all the time. Um, You know, I have a podcast now and I used to work in government doing environmental policy work, like, you know, and I have restaurants and people thought that's crazy. You can't be in the restaurant industry. Um, But I am curious about, but I love the story about how people transition from one, one industry to another. So were you in acting first and then engineering, and then that led to you going down the film route or? Um, I, I think I, I took acting lessons while I was in engineering school. So it was even before the chemical week. So I had this passion for acting as well. Because I, I also did theater while I was at University of Akron. Um, and so that, uh, I, I wanted to be an actor, you know, it's, you know, you kind of have that inkling. You're like, oh, well, I want to be an actor, so blah. And then oh, your my- parents are yeah, your parents are like, no. <laughs> totally. Well, and it's interesting because my brother, who's the biophysicist, he also wants to be a screenwriter. So oh, he yeah. is always writing on the side. And so I think we all, and a lot of doctors are musicians and a lot of, you know, so I, we can be more than one thing. I don't think we can yeah. just, we have to be one thing and just carry one label. So I was just really curious about that. Um so when you, but you've also, you're an executive producer on another film that, mm-hmm. did it already come out or is it just coming out this year, Trees of Peace? Yeah, so uh, basically in 2016, uh, after I discovered the ocean fertilizer and say like, hey, I'm going to make a documentary, um, <laughs> you know, gung-ho about it. Uh, I then uh, took some acting classes in LA. So I was actually traveling back and forth between Arizona and LA. I know it's crazy. It sounds crazy. And so I met, um, in my acting class, I met uh, the sister of the director of Trees of Peace. So I met her. I, I became friends. Well, I became acquaintances. That's how they would, they would say that. Became acquaintances uh, with the sister. And then I started following the sister on, um, on Instagram and everything, on Facebook and everything. And then I found out about, uh, you know, fundraiser for the for Trees of Peace in uh, the next year, 2017, February. And I just, I fell in love with the story. Uh, and tell us about the story. Yeah, so uh, this was uh, written by uh, Alana Brown. So she's a, she was a screenwriter and a director at the time. And uh, she wrote... these compelling stories about um, these four women uh, trapped in a compartment while the Rwandan genocide is happening all around. And uh, these four women are, you know, sort of uh, become each other's rock in terms of as the events were happening. There's so many horrible events that happen around them. People are dying. People are being, you know, it's it's so depressing, but they relied on each other to heal. And also, uh, they, they survived, like, or they, they go through the 81 days through the genocide and everything. So it's, it's, a very, it's very sad, but it's actually, the journey is actually very uplifting because they use each other to help um, 
deal with their trauma and everything because we are who we are mm-hmm. um because of events that's happened in our past and everything and it starts to shape us who we are and so that's a lot of the themes within this movie and it's a it's a narrative film hopefully hopefully it uh it premieres at con this year we'll see you know we're we're that's it's amazing. still in post-production I love that. And, you know, going back to, you know, in a film like this for sure is going to get picked up and if, you know, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of people who are inspired by it and a lot of people who could probably relate to it versus when it comes to this other documentary that you want to make about mineralizing the soils. Mm -hmm. um, And people have to understand that there is a lot of political and economical angst to have this movie made. And I experienced it when about 10 years ago, I wanted to make a documentary on Dr. Max Gerson. And uh, because I just knew his story needed to be told. So I followed a similar route to you that I met with film producers and I attended these film events where you get to pitch and, um, and people would get so into it. Like, oh my gosh, minerals heal the body. And I would explain the connection between the soil and our bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and then afterwards, they'd say the same thing to me. They're like, this is an incredible story, but nobody's going to pick this up. Nobody's going to want to touch this because you're going up against the medical system. You're going up against the insecticide industry. You're going up against, you know, some big money. And they would, like, this This was only, like, a few years ago. And they would straight out tell me, like, uh, we can't do it. We love it. Yeah. They're like, teach us how to remineralize our bodies but we're not going to make the documentary on it, which I thought was, you know, depressing. So depressing in this day and age when we can say whatever we want on, well, we can't really say whatever we want on Facebook because Facebook will shut lots of stuff down. But, um, you know, it is, it's depressing. So I can't, but you know what? I think though, I think you also hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, there's an angle, you have to figure out what's the angle that you can get the story told. And sometimes that means giving up a little bit of the story to be able to tell another part of the story, I imagine. Right. Yeah. So obviously I have, um, the documentaries are unscripted. So it's a different, it's sort of like a different, um, route Mm -hmm. as far as like versus scripted narrative films. And, um, I do I do think my my story is important and I think if you could make it in a scripted form as well I think and a celebrity gets behind it or something like that I think that's a way that's an angle that you could go and that's something that uh, I may be working towards this year as well uh so we'll see because I also because of Trees of Peace I have more connections everything on the scripted side yeah um but the documentary is obviously the really important aspect because that will explain you know the mineral deficiency it will go more into the science the simple carbohydrates versus the complex carbohydrates which will obviously heal our bodies because you know we're eating sick plants which cause our blood sugar to go up and up and down right and that's what's causing insulin resistance we have we have so many you know some so many negative negativities from eating these foods that are just deprived exactly so i i think i'm hopeful that there is a way for me to get my story out there through film uh because i think 
just like Max Gerson, you know, his, his story, man, that's, I actually knew about the Gerson therapy. Oh, you I did? Actually, yeah, so I wanted to be a doctor as well. You know, I was looking into ND programs as well, internationally. And when I found out about Gerson therapy, this was before I found out about the ocean minerals. I was like, oh, well, there's a cure. So we're good. You know, I was basically yeah. like, what's, you know, I don't necessarily want to go into doc being a doctor if, if I won't, if I'm not able to make a difference that way. You know what I mean? Um, yes, so, I do. Yes, I do. I went down yeah. the medical route as well and uh, started applying to med schools. And, you know, they basically, every doctor I talked to said, if you want to be a doctor that's teaching about remineralizing the body and food as medicine, you'll never be able to do it. And I was like, what? Um, I've learned though, that there are ways around it to be able to do yeah. it. But it, at the time I didn't know those ways. So I just, yeah. you know, I was like, oh my gosh, really? Like I'll have my license pulled, you know, and then I would- You're just no, a pawn, really. Yeah. And there was no way I was going to be the doctor that just writes scripts every day to yeah. people. Like I know people need them for sure, but there's enough doctors out there doing that. So if I couldn't be the kind of doctor that was teaching food as medicine, then I wasn't going to be a doctor. Um, and then that's what led us to open up restaurants, which is a hell of a lot yeah. of work, but it's, um, well, it's just another way of doing it. So you found another avenue for yourself, which is making these documentary films as well, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I do have uh, a question for you. What happened to just going back to DuPont because I wrote this down and what happened to the people who um, the families that died? Was there any compensation to them? Yeah, um, there was. There were. I, I don't know too much on this because I could only um, talk to what was public. Uh, there was lawsuits that happened. Um, one of the I think the first uh, person that died was a, was a woman. She was a technician. Um, she was there for I think eight months or something like that. Just eight uh, months. Less, yeah, less than less than I think. I think less than a year. I, I think I read that. That's why I didn't I didn't really know of her. Um, and they said part of the lawsuit was getting compensation. So they did get compensated, like the family su obviously sued DuPont. Mm -hmm. They did get money, but one of the uh, stipulations, part of the, you know, the settlement or whatever, um, DuPont had to do a, on November 15th for, for every year for a decade, they had to do a, um, a silence, you know, a moment of silence for the victims that were, um, that died, mm. that, you know, on that day, so November 15th. So part of me, when you first told me that, I was like, really, that is what they had to do? But then at the same time, because I can imagine people just are like, okay, moment of silence now. But then quickly, I realized, you know, it forces a company to have to talk about this with their employees so that the employees are aware that they are working in a place where that you know it is dangerous working with these chemicals and you know these insecticides are not you know inert chemicals yeah and so yeah i can understand 
why the families would want that and that is important as opposed to just sweeping it under the rug and not talking about it again. Yeah, and that actually spoke to me as well. Um, I think I recently asked my um, my sister-in-law about that. I don't I don't know exactly if they actually do if they do it, mm. but I know that she thinks about it a lot. She because she still that. works there, I imagine. She she actually left um, that plant shortly after or shortly before it shut down. Okay. Uh, she oh, left yeah. to go relocate to like Delaware, you know, Delaware, Pennsylvania. Um, DuPont no longer makes insecticides and pesticides. Right. So, you know, um, but she says that she thinks about that event a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously she's, she admires me for doing what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, it's kind of, it's crazy though, because I haven't really spoken to a lot of other workers that work there because I kind of distanced myself from, you know, DuPont, from affiliations and everything, uh, just because it's, it's, it was too hard. It's um, to think about it and just to think about, you know, the guilt, the guilt that I've put, put myself um, because of the event, but um, it's it's kind of crazy though too because um, when I worked for, uh, for Intel, so after I graduated from college in 2015, I then tried to work at some of the safest places that I thought was safe, right? So I worked for Intel, and I was on night shift, and shortly thereafter i discovered the ocean mineral fertilizer um another colleague of mine died at intel uh from he worked for intel yeah and what did he die from he died from he had surgery so he had surgery and he died from Mm. blood clot okay so not necessarily related to the industry because that would have been really hard (laughs) to go yeah i'm pretty sure that i would have you know, yeah. at that, but, um, so I shortly discovered before that death, I discovered the ocean mineral fertilizer and I would have sworn. So this death was even harder than the chemical leak. Yeah. Um, because it was a mentor of mine. And it was like a close friend of mine. And I think, um, then that was the hardest depression that I went through. Um, and I had to like, you know, when I discovered his death, I had to leave because I just, I just couldn't take it. And so I, I took, you know, a few days off from work and everything and just going back to work was never the same. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I kept remembering his last conversation with me and I just wanted to honor him as well because I found out that with the ocean mineral fertilizer, it's not just about the chemical leak. It's not just, it's all these people dying from stress, from all this like inadequacy food and everything. It was, you know, and so that's, I think what prompted me to do even more um, than what I was doing currently. And to really, to motivate me to do, you know, go, go further into the film and and really advocate for my story and everything. Um, 
I really, yeah, it's, I know anybody and everybody who's going to be listening to this is, you know, they're going to be hearing that deep compassion that you have for the planet and for the people. Um, And, you know, the unfortunate thing about it is that I think sometimes it takes losses that are huge like this to really give us that, uh, the motivation and the inspiration and the drive and the will to want to go out there and do something. And the fact that you are, you know, I could hear that you're definitely an empath and you're so empathetic. Yeah. And I'm sure you've been told that a million times, <laughs> but you just remind me so much of myself when I was, you know, I would be in my twenties and I couldn't even watch the, um, all the fundraising films about the kids in Africa who were starving without like literally bawling my eyes out and being like, what do we do about this? And we need to find a solution. And then I would, you know, I started a fundraiser. You reminded me of fundraiser. I started in my twenties, but I think that, um, I think the combination of what you have is powerful because you have the science, right? Mm -hmm. You have that engineering mind as well. Um, you have the scientific mind, you have the empathy, and then you also have these experiences that happened that, you know, all of that combined is what is the drive and the force that we need on this planet right now more than anything else. Um, The fact that you allowed yourself to be depressed, but you also found a way out, which was to spark your mind with knowledge, I think is really huge to find out what that passion is, um, I think is really huge as well. And, you know, I wish that there was a way, like everything you've shared with us is so powerful, but I wish there was almost a way that we could almost teach this to other people. Like, how do you teach this combination of factors, you know, minus having all the deaths, but that would ignite people's like literally light people's butts on fire because we need that on the planet now. We need people making these discoveries like the sea energy agriculture, um, you know, um, uh, soil regeneration. We need people who are going to want to stand up and do something who aren't just going to tweet about it or, you know, Facebook, you know, meme, hashtag, whatever they do on those, right? We need people to to really, really have these experiences like you've had. So I have to thank you for that. I know that it's, you know, you didn't really ask for these things. You were born with that empathy. You didn't ask for those deaths to occur, but you, you know, you were in a situation where you did experience it, which I'm sorry that you did. But at the same time, I really see that this combination of factors is going to make you a force to be reckoned with. And I hope you don't allow anybody to um, talk you out of doing what you're doing. Um, because mm-hmm. this work definitely needs to be done in that documentary that you're that you're writing right now and our planning needs to be made. I I really appreciate that. And I think um I talk I talk a lot about my empathy and that's that's actually part of the reason why I went I tried to go into acting because I found that, you know, I was pushed into I was I was, you know, I obviously have a combination, right? I have the engineering mind. I'm really good at math. So because I'm really good at math, I was able to get through engineering. Yeah. But ultimately, it seems to me that, you know, people and feelings and everything has a real big influence on me. And I always was concerned about people. People, to me, was the biggest factor, even mm-hmm. when I was working for 
an engineering company. I would be more interested, in, you know, in other coworkers' lives and everything. I would remember everyone's stories. I remember, you know, that is something that I'm really good at and talking to people, understanding people, that's something. And so that's why acting came about in my head. I was like, okay, because I took a personality quiz and whatnot. You take the yeah, we've done lots um, of those. <laughs> yeah, Meyer Briggs, Meyer Briggs yeah. personality test, and I figured I found out that I, I am like an ENFP. Like that's my you know empathy. You know, um, that's my personality um, trait and everything. And so, because I I did not think I did not the way I think is very different from the typical engineer, and so that's why I didn't fit in. And that's part of my feeling of inadequacy, right? Because mm-hmm. you are, you're in this environment surrounded by people that are not like you. And you feel like you don't belong. They kind of mention that to you. They're like, oh, well, you're not doing so, you know, you're, the way you come up with ideas are so different, you know. They, you see other people getting promoted before you just because exactly. you're not, that, you know. So there's, you kind of get this feeling that you just don't belong and that you made a mistake, but it's crazy because that mistake led me straight to the solution I was looking for all along, which sometimes, which, yeah, I mean, technically think that, that this is exactly the path I should have, you know, I think so too. And your story, like it really it's so interesting to hear you say it because of the fact that that's the same journey I took. I didn't become an engineer, but I went into environmental policy work working in the engineering department. And you said it so well, like I felt like an outsider. I would say, well, why can't we have both? Why can't we have sustainability within engineering? Why can't we have, you know, protect what we're protecting, but do it with less chemicals. And so when I was working on the pesticide policy for Whistler, I mean, I know they thought I was a freak, but I'm not a freak. I'm actually just someone just like yourself who, and you are a systems thinker, like you are a systems thinker. You see the connectivity between the task at hand, like whether it's engineering or acting or um, filmmaking, and you see the people and Mm -hmm. The environment and you see the story that needs to be told now for the future you see it all all in one go and I think it's hard to be a systems thinker in this world where people are very actually linear it's like okay well I'm working to get money so I can pay my bills and pay my mortgage and that's it they don't have much capacity for much more and so um, what I love about doing these podcasts is we get to share the stories of systems thinkers like yourselves, because it's the systems thinkers that go out there, they make those connections, and then yeah. they're able to do the good work, because you could do any yeah. kind of work. But if you're not thinking systemically, you will choose work in one silo field, and you will not see how it's related to everything else. And you won't take action to make the work you're doing better, so that it doesn't impact people negatively in all of those other silos but we don't live in silos everything is connected and that's what's crazy about it that's what i wanted to promote is you know we need every mineral we don't need this one mineral testing one mineral at a time the scientific you know these methods that we're looking at 
we need all of the minerals. Bam. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And that's, that's exactly what he talks about in this book. So it's, it's nuts. It's crazy. It's nuts, but you know what? You are exactly where you're supposed to be and you had to go through all of these experiences to get there. So I think for myself, this is where uh, we do need to wrap up this podcast because mm-hmm. for our listeners, when they when it goes really long, it's it's I like yeah. breaking it up into into two podcasts. And this is where I can't wait for Trees of Peace to come out because everyone, please go and see it when it does come out. Um, are they going to be showing it in California? The uh, it's right now in post-production right now. So, uh, we don't know exactly. Hopefully it comes out in Con, which, uh, is a film festival. So we're going to, uh, it's going to be in the festival circuit. So we'll see about that. And then, and then it gets picked up by distribution. So hopefully later this year. So it'll probably be like, probably later this year, like, uh, Amazing. Late, like November, maybe November, you know, uh, around there, September time, time frame. So yeah, keep keep an eye out for trees of peace yeah, when it does. Will. Exactly. And then we're going to be following you because I want to know what happens, you know, whether the documentary gets made or not, I know that life happens, but I mean, you're already behind this one film. I can see you definitely making another one. Um, I definitely want to introduce you to Dr. Zach Bush because I think the yes. two of you need to work together because the work he's doing on soil regeneration and the work that you're doing. I'm sure that when the two of you get together, there'll be sparks flying and ideas that maybe he hasn't thought of yet, despite being, you know, triple board certified medical doctor. I mean, he went through the same path that you went through seeing a lot of pain and suffering happen. And then um, seeing that pain and suffering happen, wanted to find a solution to it. He found food as medicine and then which brought him to soil regeneration um, as medicine for the planet, as well as the people and the plants and the animals. So you two need to get connected for sure. And so let's sign off and say goodbye, but we are going to be definitely having you back on the show because I want to learn all about all the other things that you're doing. Where did you go? It's dark. I will definitely stay in contact for when um, things actually start happening um, with my documentary. I know uh, and maybe we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm also going to launch probably uh, my own webpage and everything and probably going to have like different links to this, you know, the actual companies that sell the ocean mineral fertilizer. And I may actually also have a an ebook that I release as well, so that will be uh, important things. I'm sorry, my, my phone is about to die, so that's, that's why I'm in here. <laughs> I was like, "What's happened to you?" To yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's why I had to I had to plug it in. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, we're we're definitely in that phase, and then um, we'll keep you updated on on what happens. Yeah, I also, I have obviously my Instagram and stuff. I'm not as active on Instagram, and I wish I was more active, Um, but uh, I'll I'll try to be more active. 
You know what? You're busy doing a lot of research, so I'm okay that you're not active on Instagram. We suffer from that as well because we get so much into helping people and then doing research to make sure that we're helping people with the right information that we tend to let our social media slide as well. So I think that is okay in this day and age where people have their noses too deep into social media. Um, so I'm okay with that, but send us all the links when you do have them because we definitely want to share them. Uh, with everybody so they'll they'll know how to be get in touch with you. So thank you so much, Lindsay, for being on our show and sharing your very moving story um, and very inspirational story as well. It's been a pleasure having you on our Eat Realty Hill podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I think this has been uh, the first interview where I've told everything that uh, is needed to be told. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to voice my story and, and what I'm promoting as well, that it helps me heal as someone that has um, been through a lot. So I really appreciate that. Of course. And I think that storytelling, like you mentioned, is probably one of the most cathartic things that you can do. One of our previous guests, um, she had a brain tumor and the doctor said, oh, it's fine. It's, you know, it's growing so slowly that we don't need to check it for another year. Meanwhile, um, a few months later, her brain started to swell and the brain tumor grew twice its size. And the doctors didn't believe her, so they didn't even want to give her a CT scan. And she went home to what would literally have been her death if her husband had said, no way, I'm taking you. And they had to pay for an MRI and a CAT scan on their own. Um, and then she was rushed into surgery. But that whole experience traumatized her because of the fact that, you know, as a mother um, and as somebody who, you know, she thought, you know, she's quite an intelligent woman. She listened to the doctors when they said, no, it's nothing, even though she had severe symptoms of the brain swelling, the doctors kept saying no. And so being that so that close to death brought her, um, definitely brought on post-traumatic stress um, uh, symptoms and syndrome. And it was through the act of writing and her therapist actually said, just write your story. And she did. And in the writing of her story, she did lots of research and she discovered all of these things, but she did say, and I'll, I'll share that link with you because I think it would be great for you to listen to it. But she describes how that storytelling was very cathartic. And now she's written several books and she's helping governments be able to help the medical system and doctors recognize when they need to listen to their patients and just helping other doctors learn from her experience. So I, th I think you're correct in that, in that storytelling is healing. So thanks for sharing that. So we'll be in touch, Lindsay, when um, this airs, and then you can share it with others as well, which I think will oh, I, I be think fantastic. That, I think that you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about how it, there's so much, um, like you do your own research, and you find out things that you never would have found out because you're you have to talk about it, it, you know, in your story, you have to integrate in your story. And that for me, like writing an ebook, I'm finding out stuff that I never even knew just because I, I'm forced to write, you know, so, you know, something that's informative and everything. Like I didn't, it's not like I knew about the TNT aspect with the, the nitrogen based fertilizer. 
but I didn't really, but I didn't really. Exactly. Not until you actually dive into it. Yeah. I know. And then diving into it and making those discoveries brings up so much as well, because then that brings up that, why doesn't anybody else know about this? And why, how could this be happening? And what kind of world do we live in? And so it's a cycle of this joy and discovery and learning that lights us up. And then also having to manage those discoveries in a way that it doesn't wreck us as well, because a lot of these subject matters that you're researching, that I'm researching, they're heavy and they're political and their social issues that are massive. And so then we always have to be, be managing that. And in my master's program, I remember when they said, be careful of the hope and despair syndrome, which is you go through these intense periods of hope and then intense periods of despair. And it's a cycle that you have to navigate through and be very self-compassionate and patient with yourself as you, as you maneuver through it. Yeah. No, I definitely feel that. I've been mm-hmm. through a lot of bars. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> but you're here and you're laughing about it and laughter is medicine too. So, and you know yeah. what? You found a partner in crime and I found a partner in crime in you. So um, I really look forward to staying connected with you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. No, this has been healing as well. It's, 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 uh, it's one thing to write about it, but it's another thing. Exactly. Being so understanding on my story, and um, a lot of things that you spoke about really resonated with me. And I'm glad that you found out about you know nursing therapy and everything. Oh, me too. Oh man, that's crazy. There's also another documentary about that. I don't know if you know about it. On the Gerson therapy? Yeah. Um, well, I w- actually traveled in LA with the film producer and the director of the new Gerson film. It's called Dr. Max Gerson. It's called, yeah, I oh. think it's called, not that one. So that one just won, it came second in the Burberry, uh, Burbank Film F- Festival, um, oh. which is great. So, but she's also looking for money to finish that documentary as well, um, or feature film actually she's made it as. And then are you thinking of Beautiful Truth? No, there's one called The Food Cure. Oh, yeah, that's right. And those directors, yeah. So I can't, I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen it? I have not seen it, but I've been, I was trying, I was trying to help uh, the director on that because I think The Food Cure uh, is following like five people that decided yeah. to go to person. Yeah. I think it's, it's just an inspiring story, but I did not see it yet. Yeah. No, we're trying to bring that film up to Whistler as well. So we've been trying to reach out to the food cure uh, team to see what we can do to get it up here. So hopefully that happens soon because I'm really excited to see that. Thanks for reminding me about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, amazing. Okay, Lindsay, I'm going to let you go and get back to your day and I'm going to go get back to my day. Um, Thanks again for everything. Thank you. Okay, we'll be in touch soon. Okay, bye. So there it is. How did you enjoy that episode with Lindsay? Inspiring. I really can't wait to dive into this research around seawater to understand what is available to us, what technologies and resources are available to us that are natural, that are are there, what will that look like to try and harness that 
energy and those resources in a sustainable way that we can actually integrate them into our farming practices? What will that look like when our farming practices are resurrected and changed as a result of this incredible um, product that is available on the market already? And what I love about this episode as well is that it shows that even though people had ideas decades ago, it's never too late to go back in history and unravel the thinking and ideas and the philosophies and the science behind these ideas generators, behind these thinkers, behind these scientists and medical doctors who discover something, they play with it for a little while. Sure, it doesn't get taken up by mainstream um, media or mainstream science or 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 other groups or parties, but it doesn't mean it's not too late. Sometimes we do need these ideas to percolate for a little while. And sometimes it's years, sometimes it is decades until somebody else comes along and says, hey, there was actually some robustness to the thought process, some robustness to the science. And for all the reasons why medical-based evidence, or sorry, evidence-based medicine is wonderful. There's also so many sides to it where it's not wonderful. And that's where ideas and science don't get picked up because there's not the funding or there's not the interest or because there's other solutions that are cheaper. And so why do we need to investigate more expensive solutions? But then eventually those cheap solutions are realized as being toxic to the planet, like pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, um, and all the conventional farming practices that we've seen now. And then that's when we go back and go, oh, you know what, there's other ways of doing it. And so going back in history and unpacking those ideas are the way that we actually make advancements in history and in um, soil regeneration and in farming practice and in food security and in medicine and dentistry and psychiatry and whatnot in really all of the fields that affect our human existence on the planet. So I hope that you dive into looking at how we can use seawater to regenerate our soils. And if you know of anybody that is doing it, share this information with them, but also share their information with us because it's all about connecting people and ideas. And last week I had, I don't even know if it was last week or this week because my weeks are blending into each other, but I had the wonderful opportunity to be on an incredible webinar with Dr. Zach Bush from Farmer's Footprint. And Dr. Zach Bush is a medical doctor. And in this webinar, they brought together four beautiful humans that are all researchers and scientists and doctors to talk about soil regeneration and all of the things that they've come to know and how we can turn it around within a few short years. And in fact, a few short growing seasons. But the one thing that I got out of that podcast was not so much about what everybody, the experts were talking about. It was the hundreds of people that were on that webinar and that were all participating. And I thought, hmm, we have all these people that are interested in the same topic, but we don't have any way to access their information. So I just started taking down their names and cutting and pasting their names from the chat section. And afterwards, I did ask the event organizers to say, hey, put us together in a group so that we can stay to connect, connected and learn about what is happening and also be able to contribute and share our knowledge because we have to come together as, in these groups to do that. And 
if we know that there's a group of like-minded individuals that are all signing up for similar webinars because they're interested in the same subject matter, wouldn't it be good to harness the knowledge of the collective, of the group, not just the experts, but of all the people that are working and playing and interested in and researching and maybe just you know investigating for the first time this information about regenerative soil practices and farming practices. And what if we were to harness the knowledge from this collective group that came together and see what came from that? And that's something we do in a facilitation process that I use, which is called open space, which I love doing because it's not about calling experts together. It's about calling the the public together. It's about calling the citizens together. It's about calling the layman, the lay person together because everybody has knowledge that we can learn and access just like Lindsay, you know, a chemical engineer who now has become an expert in her field, but she also needs support from other like-minded humans who are interested in the same subject matter and can help motivate her. And she can in turn motivate them to want to dive further into this field to make it in, to make the topic of using seawater in regenerative farming practices an actual reality. And that's how we're going to really advance things quickly in our society is when we not only revert to the, experts, but when we also revert to the masses, because the market will drive um, the, drive a lot of these innovations as well. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up there. I clearly am in a speaking deficit. I'm normally speaking, you know, five days a week um, when our businesses are up and running and clearly I'm not there. So I'm taking it all out on you guys in the intros and outros, but uh, I can do that because guess what? This is my show. I am your host, Nicolette Richet of the Eat Real TL podcast, and you can always just fast forward through these intros and outros if I just start going off on a tangent, but I sincerely hope that there were little gold nuggets of information that you were getting out of that. Um, and so yes, go ahead and share this podcast with others and stay tuned next week for our next podcast. Uh, super excited to bring these to you and super excited to be able to host these wonderful guests who take the time out of their day to share their unique, marvelous stories with all of you. Okay, everyone, be well, wash your hands, eat clean, real organic food, nutrify your bodies, build your immune system, get lots of sleep, do some yoga and stretching, meditate. You know what you need to do to get through this pandemic with resilience. Okay, everyone, bye for now. Good night. <music>